Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Hello, everybody. It's Political Rewind time here at Georgia Public Radio. Glad to have you with us uh, for the show today. This is an important show if you're listening in real time uh, because our panel is going to get a chance to weigh in on any number of bills that right now are being talked about downtown. The session is not on today. They've got a day for committee work and negotiating uh, to get set for tomorrow crossover day the day in which bills either live or die for the session, for the most part. So we're going to talk a lot about that on today's show. And there's some pretty interesting bills in the mix. We've got uh, Greg Bluestein with us, of course. It's Wednesday. He's here on Wednesdays from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You have been very, I mean, you're covering this legislature inside and out right now. You're working hard. Yeah, and we're right. It's like the calm before the storm. We're right before the the judgment day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Somebody in our morning meeting, um, Stephen Fowler, our reporter down at the Capitol, said already the Senate rules calendar has like 37 bills uh, up, and they'll probably have a supplemental tomorrow. That will grow, and the House calendar will grow, too. (laughs) Right across from you, if you're watching us on Facebook Live at GPB News, uh, you'll see former State Senator Eric Johnson is with us, um, Republican senator. How long did you serve in the state Senate? Two in the House, 15 in the Senate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you ran for lieutenant governor in 2008? Started lieutenant governor, ended up in the governor's race. That's Okay, That's right. but when did that happen? 2010? Eight, year, eight years ago. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. 2010. That's right. I was I went, thinking about you as a candidate for lieutenant governor. My wife you... says I went from who's who to who cares. <laughs> <laughs> Eric is with us in Atlanta. He still makes his home and has his business uh, down in uh, Savannah. And also joining us from Savannah, you're well represented on our show today, Savannah, is uh, Adam Van Brimmer, who is the editorial page editor of Savannah Now. Hey, Adam, thanks for joining us from the Bureau down there. Hi, Bill. Glad to be with you. And I am the who cares since Eric <laughs> seated it over to <laughs> elsewhere in town. And also joining us here in the studio, Beth Shapiro. Beth is now, she tells us retired, but she still keeps her hand in politics. She's a former pollster, Democratic political consultant, did work on polling for candidates as well as the nonprofit work that she did. We haven't seen you in a while. I'm glad you're back. I'm too busy being retired. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we get into legislative news, Greg, there's an important development out of the U.S. House that relates specifically to Georgia. Yeah, about an hour ago, the leaders of a U.S. House committee with subpoena power requested documents from senior Georgia officials about alleged voting irregularities in the state during last year's election. Those documents involve both Brian Kemp, now the governor, of course, and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And they're looking at documents related to exact match, consolidation of polling sites, and long lines. So this is one of many, many subpoenas they're requesting, um, you know, mostly focused on President Trump. But this is this is another you know, big development. This is coming out of judiciary? This is Where coming most out of, of the subpoena, oh, well, they're not subpoenas, but the request for documents on the Trump. This is uh, coming out of House Oversight. Oversight, report. okay. So it's Elijah Cummings' committee. And Elijah Cummings did say uh, when, that, when the Democrats took control of the House that he had every intention of investigating irregularities in a number of states, uh, including Georgia. Eric Johnson, let me get your take on this, and, and then we'll go around. You know, uh, the... State has been under a cloud throughout the last months of the campaign. Accusations of efforts by Brian Kemp to um, suppress the vote. It, when when a guy like Elijah Cummings uh, makes requests for these documents or actually subpoenas them, um, to what extent does he understand that a good deal of what happens in elections in Georgia is done at the county level? This is all about keeping Stacey Abrams alive for a Senate race. I mean, this, that, that's all that's going on. They, they're trying to get Georgia's electoral votes and they're, uh, for in the 2020 election, and they're trying to keep Stacey alive for a U.S. Senate seat. You know, they're, they're not going to find anything in Georgia. I mean, there are always hiccups in elections. Uh, our governor knows who was Secretary of State at the time, knows the elections back and forth. There's no reason to believe that there was any games played 
And, and, and remember, let's, the elections are run by local governments, not the state governments anyway. Well, all right, so, Beth, I, I hear what Eric is contending here. Um, certainly something like exact match does relate to what's happening. A state uh, regulation that is, um, you know, practiced by counties all over. But things like which precincts are open or closed, which is one of the things on the list, that is a decision by the counties who are involved, right? That That's true. I, I think it's uh, disingenuous to say elections are run at the county level. The state has no part in it because the state does have a part in uh uh, providing guidelines to, as to how elections should be run, and uh, certainly in terms of, of uh, areas like exact match. Uh, I don't know. I haven't read the article. I don't know what's in the subpoena. I'm also hoping that uh, it includes um, access to the actual programming of the election machines, because there's, there's still the unresolved issue that's working its way through the courts of the uh, tremendous drop-off in votes from the governor's race to lieutenant governor's race, uh, and it was a drop-off that appeared only in the casting of votes that were cast on machine on machines. The paper ballots, the absentee vote by mail, paper ballots. There was no drop-off. So there are there are some uh, apparent irregularities that came out of the election here last year uh, that are about far more than uh, any one individual's political future. It's it's about the integrity of our election system. And it does seek those documents about the drop-off in votes in the LG race, and also importantly. Uh, about the Secretary of State Office's 11th hour investigation into the Democratic Party of Georgia um, the Sunday before the election. Um, and and we haven't heard from Brian Kemp quite yet. We're going to hear from him probably as we're speaking at 2 o'clock. He has a press conference. Um, but we've already heard from Re- uh, Secretary Raffensperger, who said he's going to fully cooperate with the request. So. Yeah, Adam, I would think that it would be in the best interest of the state uh, if, if, in fact, state officials believe that they acted in good conscience and that there may have been some problems, but none that were deliberative and manipulative. If that's what they believe, Adam, I would think they would welcome an opportunity to uh, get these records out there, wouldn't you, Adam? Yeah, I think that's correct. I think we saw with the the House bill on the voting machines that included some reforms that looked at uh, exact match and some of these other things where they're trying to take some steps to put a little bit more uh, I don't want to use the word integrity because that that is a, a very loaded word, but certainly they're taking some steps to kind of reassure some people in terms of mm-hmm. the election systems and that kind of thing. You know, we had Brad Raffensperger stop by our office last Friday. We did a, a podcast with him that's that's up through Savannah now, and he really kind of talked through a lot of those things and, and how he is – he is very proactive in terms of trying to make sure that our election system is on the up and up and as transparent as it can be. Uh, I would want to comment on one thing that, that Senator Johnson said is I really don't think Stacey Abrams needs any help in terms of her profile right now. So I don't know that I'll buy <laughs> that side well, of even, it. Well, so. even Hillary's prom- promoting her. As long as they, they can claim that uh, Brian Kemp's not the legitimate govern- governor, it keeps her in the news. Um I think she has a lot more keeping her in the news than, than yeah. claims about. All right, all right, Kemp. all right. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch how this unfolds, uh, because I assume this is a process that plays out for months and months to come when these documents are for the process of subpoenaing, gathering, getting a hearing scheduled. And I assume the next step, Greg, is we're going to see uh, officials from the state of Georgia called to testify. You potentially. might. Um, the deadline for the first round of documents is March 20th, so it's pretty, okay, it's, it's quick. pretty soon. Wow. Um, but yeah, and, and remember, they had a field hearing, Democrats had a field hearing just a couple weeks ago in Georgia. Didn't, didn't, I don't yeah. think they had the authority to call anyone to testify there, but you could well see someone being called to, to Washington. Yeah, we should point out that that field hearing was run by the majority mm-hmm. Democrats, which is perfectly reasonable. That happens in these instances. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, the witnesses who testified were were there pretty much specifically to reinforce the Democrats' belief that there was a, a significant manipulation uh, there, in terms there's of— There's never an agenda in elections, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. I want to get to one other very uh, quick headline that just developed in the last couple of hours, uh, because in a way, I think it's going to relate to a story we're going to talk about later, this uh, question about whether the state is going to move forward with an effort to take uh, Hartsfield-Jackson uh, Airport away from the city of Atlanta. We have had a new major development in the Atlanta bribery scandal. Remember, the feds have been investigating City Hall for 
a long, long time now, well over a year, maybe as long as two years. Mm -hmm, more than, yeah. More than that, uh, Greg. And a grand jury has now uh, returned yet another indictment, the first one in quite a while. A contractor named Jeff Shafari uh, is accused of paying bribes to the former city procurement director, Adam Smith. And, of course, Adam Smith has already pleaded guilty to taking bribes. He's in federal prison. And the point of all this, Beth, is... For people who think just because the feds are quiet, as they've been in this case for a long time now, they're far from finished with their work. I, I suspect that that even with the indictment, the announcement of the indictment today, that, that there is still more work to be done. Uh, I've, I live in the city. I've lived in the city for many, many years. Uh, I've, I've been distressed to see what's developed over the, the past uh, eight, nine years or so. Uh, I'm hoping that Mayor Bottoms will... Uh, continue to take the steps that she's begun to take to uh, to clean up the procurement and contracting process to add uh, to increase actually to add transparency to the process. Um, so I'm uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're at least moving in the right direction after eight years of uh, of a mess. All right. Well, we'll watch how that unfolds. And as I said a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about the the bill which would. Uh, uh, take control of the airport away from the city of Atlanta. You better believe this is coming up. To well, absolutely. I can't wait to hear people take the well and uh, cite this uh, indictment as part of their reason for wanting to do that. But let's do this first. Um, because during our show yesterday, Greg, we got a pretty big headline that came across uh, from your folks at the AJC. A scholarship bill that was a, a very was a new effort, a new idea about how to help pay for private schools for uh, parents who wanted to get their kids out of the public school system across the state, which seemed to have, it had the support of the governor, uh, it had the support of the lieutenant governor. The idea, I think I'm correct, is that um, in the past, we still have tax credits. I can make a contribution to a fund and get a tax credit that fund is then distributed uh, out of the tax credit money from private individuals. This was different. This was a pot of state money, the money that would normally go to students in the public school mm -hmm. systems, and the state would write checks from that pot of state funds to help subsidize private schools. You got it, which is also the reason it was so controversial, where you had all the public school advocates and all the public school systems lining up against this measure. Um, and in a surprise twist, not only did it fail, but it failed because two of the most prominent leaders, Republican leaders in the state Senate, either Butch Miller, the pro tem, ended up supporting, uh, allying with Democrats and a handful of Republicans to vote against it. And uh, Majority Leader Mike Dugan um, did not vote at all. He said he had a conflict involving an event at City Hall. So you had the two leaders of the Repu the two of the top leaders in the Republican caucus, uh, both not voting for this bill. Eric Johnson, it's perfect that you are here today because you have probably been one of the longest, longest standing supporters of vouchers for schools. Uh, you go back, you know, a couple of decades in your support for this when you were in the legislature. I, I think it's it's about giving parents choice, um, and if if you think about the right now. It, it's roughly 50% of the cost of public education comes from the state and 50% comes from the local property taxes. So the theory is you take the state's portion and allow that amount of money to follow the child to the school of their choice. It may not be to escape public schools. It may not be a negative thing. It may be that they have a better program, better STEM education, closer to the school. Mama teaches at a school, anything that gives they want to go to the school of their choice and take their tax dollars and let the let that child use it to help supplement or even pay for completely the private school scholarship, leaving the half, the 50% of the money behind in the public schools without the child. So I've always argued that public schools doesn't get their money cut. They get increased on a per child expenditure. Um, so I don't, I know it's controversial because I know the public school advocates say that this is going to destroy public education um, but it, this issue elected the governor of Florida. This, this, I mean, people, people in the streets, parents want choice. Well, okay, but here's the problem, Eric. Your argument um, may make it. I, I understand that there's a lot of people out there who agree with you. Unfortunately, you've got leaders, Adam, in the state senate itself, Republican leaders, who decided to take a walk 
on this vote. I think the rules chair was also uh, not in the uh, it, Jeff Mullis, Jeff Mullis also didn't. didn't cast a ballot in this. Adam, this seems like a political. It's really strange to understand what happened with a bill that had the backing of the governor and the lieutenant governor. Yeah, you know, choice is one of those things. It's it's very political to start with, right? Because I think we all. I'm a parent. I got two kids that I've got an eighth grader and a fifth grader, and we we all want our kids to have the best education they could get. And the thing is, in this state, is up until what last year, we weren't even fully funding our public schools, and now we're doing that, but we have an outdated formula. And in the meantime, we're setting aside basically tax incentives for you to send your kids to private school, and now that went from what 65 million last year to 100 million this year. Now there's this effort for these these direct payments. And, you know, the bottom line is, I think for a lot of these legislators, their constituents, probably 95, 96, 90 percent of them that have kids in school, they have their kids in public school. So they're looking at the whole idea of if, if my kids aren't getting what they need money wise in the public school and all of a sudden you're going to start taking more money in this way directly the, uh, in, the, in terms of the tax incentives indirectly then maybe I don't support that, and maybe I can put some pressure on my legislators that way. Beth, what do you make of this? Um, go ahead. Um, I, I make of it that I have a uh, just a fundamental philosophical disagreement with, with Eric. I, just, I think public funds belong in public schools. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a former public school teacher. Uh, I'm a, a very strong advocate on behalf of public schools. And I, I just think that... that uh, instead of trying to defund them, uh, we should be working to to improve them. And I just I just disagree completely with any attempt to remove public dollars from public education. All right. So and there are great public schools. My kids both went to public schools. I went to public school. But some of them aren't good. Some of them are dangerous. Some of them are failing. And you're forcing parents to send their children based on their zip code or where or the address, street address, and the, and not giving them an out with their own tax. All dollars. right. So this has been a long-standing debate, obviously in, in in our legislature, as it has been in states across the country. But but let's again go back to the politics of this, Greg Bluestein. You you essentially you have a brand new governor, you have a brand new lieutenant governor, and you've already got Republican Senate leadership revolting against yeah. them. To, what is this all about? There's no doubt this is a blow to Jeff Duncan and, and Governor Kemp, who both put their administrations behind it. Um, but also, you know, there's a lot of turmoil within the Republican caucus because their leaders just just bucked them on this, right? There's a mini revolt. Um, so if you're a rank-and-file Republican, you just saw one of your leaders just vote against this bill and the other one take a walk, what are you thinking? They're, they're upset. Um, and the second part of this is that Look, I mean, if you're Kemper Duncan, you want this bill coming back because you want to show a force. You want to show that tomorrow this could pass. But when you need to flip four votes and when rank and file members who already went out, put their necks on the line to vote for this and it it failed and their constituents were a member of this, um, there's not much of an appetite for bringing this. one. Is there a fiscal note attached to this? Excuse me for not knowing. I mean, I guess the question is. Do we we know how much money I, I the money f- that would go from the state to each student follows the student in this ele- this scholarship program, but I don't know how much money that is, and I'm not sure, Eric, how much money that but takes you away. Don't know from, how many kids will take it? Well, that's take, true. Take advantage of it, but you know, one of the reasons I've always is there, I guess is there a key a, issue is, there is it's cap? accountability. It's accountability. The public schools will work harder to make sure the students or the parents don't move their child out. So there's an accountability factor, but you don't, so you don't know how many will take advantage of it. Depends on the private school market in their area, what the cost of tuition is, et cetera. Uh, an analysis of a, of a similar bill uh, from last year found it would cost $48 million of tax dollars in the first year, but rising to about 540 uh, in a decade. So do we think perhaps, Adam, uh, or anybody at the table, that was there a conservative revolt on this as well? Was it some of it pressure from conservatives who didn't want to spend that kind of money? I think this was pressure from that. public school systems okay. yeah. that did not want to see that Whatever that number is, that's, that's not coming out of public school because, remember, the child is leaving. So they're not paying for the classroom space or the cafeterias I mean, or the books for those children. Beth, you're, you're skeptical. Because, in, you know, it's not like that money is directly 
assigned to a given student. It goes into the pot for each school. And and I, I think, Eric, actually, before the show started, you made a great point about where about the opposition coming from local school systems, that, that every legislator in the state has public schools in his or her district. Mm-hmm. And I suspect they were under tremendous pressure from, they, uh, mm-hmm. from their local school systems, uh, as well as from... Uh, parents uh, in school systems with with highly performing schools, which would be the uh, many suburban areas, which are uh, home to or used to be home to the the Republican base. All right. So first of all, Robert Jimison says uh, that this bill would limit the program to 0.5 percent of the state student enrollment of those receiving funds in the first year. 9,000 students uh, basically would go, but it would go up from there. Here's the, to, to put a period on this part of the conversation, what this suggests to me, Adam, is that we might expect a wild and woolly finish to this legislative session if you've got a state Senate that is spiraling a little bit out of control, at least on this measure, who knows where they go next. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that this might be specific to this measure because I, I think – the last couple of years have brought into focus the fact of we need, really need to get our priorities straight in terms of education funding. You know, we got to fully fund the public schools. Then we have to figure out, okay, this is the amount of money we have going to these SSOs. And then from there, what are we going to do? Are we going to make it a priority to redo this formula so that we can fully fund public schools the way they should be? Or do we want to look at alternatives? Well, right now, it's just been a scattershot approach. And in terms of other topics, whether it's health care, immigration, or anything else, I, I don't know that this has any real kind of... Go ahead, Ben. You know, I'm wondering if, if uh, either inadvertently or maybe deliberately the, the Senate didn't uh, help Governor Kemp, because Governor Kemp campaigned on a promise to give $5,000 a year pay raises to school teachers. And that, that amount's already been dialed back in the legislation mm-hmm. that, that's moving through. Uh, and and this may have uh, saved him a little wrath from from school teachers who would not be happy with the money being taken uh, from from public school. All right. Well, I don't know. we'll watch that. I, I will say that I thought Ad, Adam's uh, assessment was uh, entirely optimistic, Eric. You've been yeah. there. Once you revolt against the leadership, you've revolted against yeah. the I leadership. Think there's, you've got C.O.N. <laughs> you've got C.O.N. in trouble. You've got hate crimes in trouble yeah. on the House. You've yep. got the airport vote. You've got a speaker that's got challenges with only a 14-vote margin in the Pine Tree Caucus. You've got a freshman lieutenant governor, a freshman governor who still aren't fully staffed. I think it's going to be a wild and woolly <laughs> buy the pop, popcorn into this session. All right. And aren't you sorry you're not still there, Eric <laughs> Don't, No, not at all. all much right, more fun watching from the bleachers. <laughs> Bev Shapiro's not down there lobbying either. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's talk about some of those bills that Eric Johnson just uh, listed rather quickly. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. A new flood control system in a New Jersey town could make a big difference for residents. Without flood control, it was only the next natural disaster before you were wiped out. Now developers are pouring in, and many worry that could mean low-income Latino residents will be priced out. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Um, Adam Van Brimmer, let me start with you on this, please. Uh, for a long time now, there's been a debate in the uh, cap under the Gold Dome over just how far the state ought to go in helping families who th- believe that medical marijuana or cannabis oil uh, would go in, in helping, especially their children who have a variety of, of serious uh, is- issues, medical issues. And of course, we all know by now that the legislature mm, three sessions ago, Alan in 2015, Peek, yeah, three sessions ago, passed a bill which made it legal for people with children or with their own certain uh, list of conditions, which kept expanding over the next couple of sessions, to use the oil legally. But there's been no ability to 
manufacture or distribute in the state of Georgia. And now we have a bill that's actually gotten passed one house of the legislature that would allow for production of and some distribution of uh, uh, medical marijuana. Uh, How does that issue uh, resonate down there in Savannah? It's kind of interesting how this has been billed, at least by the local champion down here is Representative Carl Gilliard, and he really has stepped up the narrative, and he's sold it in terms of help for har- help for farmers. Of course, we've had a lot of issues with storms in recent years, whether it's in southwest Georgia or here closer to Savannah with, with uh, pecans and blueberries and that kind of thing. And it, this may be not only good for people who need this CBD, but also as a way to kind of prop up the farmers. And as we're seeing in Washington right now, that it's the the federal government is a little bit slow to bring their help there. And I think that has helped kind of drive this. And then, of course, you also have the national trend. I think this trend has been going this way for a couple of years across the country, and eventually it was going to come here. Uh, David Ralston weighed in on uh, uh, this measure and wanted to reassure people that it isn't as dire a situation as some portend. Let's listen. I want to be very clear. This is not about recreational use. It's not about smoking. This is about a medical treatment for people uh, who have been diagnosed with uh, specified conditions uh, who find relief uh, in this oil. But Beth, the law enforcement community was down there working against this bill, believing that, number one, some saying this is a gateway drug, marijuana, uh, and, and that this will open the door for eventual recreational marijuana being legalized in Georgia. You know, we allow, excuse me, we allow the use of this substance now. And to me, the logical next step is to then grow it and produce it here and then carefully control and regulate its use. I, I don't, uh, I, I disagree that it, it's necessarily a gateway drug. Uh, if we if we think it's okay for Georgia citizens to use it, then we ought to be able to figure out a way to produce it here, uh, particularly if it's something that, that could benefit the agricultural industry, which needs all the help it can get. This is going to face a very interesting and tough fight in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, the House is usually where these bills originate with, with Alan Peake, yep. so the godfather of the bill. And Who Ralston, has now stepped down. He's retired. He's now retired. Speaker Ralston, there's a famous image of him with children who would benefit from this oil back in 2015, of you know, kind of crawling all over the podium, being very excited that this was passing. Senate's going to be a little tougher fight. And then with Governor Kemp, it's, 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 it's a big question mark because Governor Deal shut the door on this last year. He said he was not, had no appetite of, of going, going down this path as long as the federal government hadn't taken a stance yet because it's still technically illegal to have, to have this oil cross state lines, even though it's been not enforced. Um, Kemp has not made that any stance. He, he at first was opposed to it, and then in the, in the runoff decided that he was open to research-based expansion, which we're not sure what that means. Yeah, I think, first of all, let's make clear that the reason we have to do it is because the federal law says you can't transport yeah. it. So right. you can get a prescription for it, but then you have to break the law to get it. I think there's a lot of support for it. I hear I hear constantly of people that have benefited from it. It's And, and even if it's a placebo and it helps people, PTSD or, or whatever the issue is, God bless them. Um, so is it a, I don't know, I don't think it's a gateway drug. I think it, it it's... It, but it is controversial as to whether you go into recreational, and maybe this is the first step, the slippery slope. But I hear enough yeah. folks that have benefited from cannab- cannab- oil, what, can- cannabis oil. Cannabis oil. It took me about two months to get that right, <laughs> yep. Eric. No problem. I think there are a lot of baby boomers. Your body. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of baby boomers out there hoping that it leads the way to something, but. The, uh, but the medical side of it, I think, is legitimate, and, and if we're going to allow people to, to prescribe it, we, we need to provide people to access it. Yeah, when they talk about a gateway, that's what they're really talking about, is it's a gateway to eventually legalizing recreational marijuana. I think that's probably, if you pin people in a corner, that's really what the real fear is here by, by signing off on this. And we have seen an expansion since 2015. When it first passed, there was a very limited uh, number of of, of, of uh, illnesses that it affected, and it's broadly expanded now to certain types of cancers and the Parkinson's disease and other illnesses. Um, and so to a degree, the, the, the opponents were right that this was kind of an opening shot that would expand. 
But it also brings up the question, if you were legalizing it, how do you bring it, how do you bring it to the state? And we had Alan Peak himself, the lawmaker we were mentioning earlier, was very open about the fact that he flouted federal laws by bringing this in from Colorado just to help mm-hmm. children who suffered from epilepsy and all these other maladies um, get this disease themselves because the, the, the oil is not allowed to be cultivated and, and distributed. I'll bet Congress deals with the with the transportation. Yeah, the question, I, I think this issue is going to be a congressional and a Senate campaign issue, too. Well, particularly since Jeff Sessions is no longer attorney mm-hmm. general. And, of course, Sessions was uh, ready to wage war on medical on marijuana, whether it's recreational or medical across the country. Uh, all right, Greg, uh, big issue and here we are, crossover day tomorrow, day 28 in the legislature, and one that I think a lot of people thought would never still be uh, hanging around for potential passage is the state effort to take over Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. As uh, Keisha Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, would say, to steal Hartsfield-Jackson away from the city. She says it's a theft and it's an act of war against the city hall. Um, This is Atlanta's crown jewel. It's the economic development engine of not just the city, but the state, along with the port. And there is an effort, and it's been on for years. This has gone for decades, but never has it gotten this far. Never has it gotten to a full vote in a chamber. Um, Even at the the low point in city-state relations, it didn't get this far. And then certainly last year and the years before Governor Deal, we said he shut down the medical marijuana bill. He also shut this down, I mean, very, very quickly by leaking documents that showed what a financial problem this would this would lead to for the airport. Well, now that he's gone, we have we're, I don't think Governor Kemp is a supporter of this, but he's certainly not been a vocal opponent of it either. And it's that's that's one of the reasons it's moving forward. Beth, one of the things that's changed here is we no longer have the partnership that Mayor Kasim Reed and Governor Nathan Deal formed in trying to work together for the benefit of the state and the city. Keisha Bottoms and uh, uh, the governor, they may be trying to form a relationship, but it isn't quite there to the point that the governor has been firm about uh, giving the city its way on this. Well, I I think that the, I, I don't understand why the state wants to take it over. It's Hartsfield Jackson is one <laughs> of the, Eric will nodding. tell me in a minute, uh, but, <laughs> no, but it's one of the, the, the busiest and best run airports in the world. Uh, to me, this is just a naked power grab that goes into the category, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And and I do think it's important to point out that if, if this is all about perceived management issues or perceived political interference in the running of the airport, that we don't have to go too far back in Georgia political history to see where then-Governor Sonny Perdue put his cousin, who's now uh, U.S. Senator David Perdue, on the Georgia Ports Authority board. We just had a story in the AJC yesterday or the day before about a number of of, uh, pretty cushy contracts that were signed with the heads of the Georgia Ports Authority, the heads of the uh, Georgia World Congress Center Authority, uh, by outgoing Governor Nathan Deal to uh, contracts signed with the executive directors of those authorities. So we've seen political interference uh, or political involvement on the part of the state uh, in state-run authorities, and I'm just not quite sure how ma- how the state managing Hartsfield Internet- Jackson International Airport would take the politics out of running the airport. Eric, you were nodding when when Beth said, "I'm not quite sure why they want control." It's it's like, do you do you want MARTA? Do you want the airport? I mean, sometimes it's better to just be on the outside criticizing the operations than than owning it. As I understand the issue, one of the reasons it's gone so far is because the, the growing cor- corruption they're finding inside of City Hall, B.J. Pack, and some of it related to the airport and vendors and some of it related just to City Hall. So, But as I understand it, there's a CEO at the airport that's running, doing a good job in running, and then there's a purchasing department that doesn't report to the CEO. He reports directly back to the mayor and city council, and that's where the problem is. And if they can clean up purchasing and make it look like it's open and transparent and fair and there's no cronyism, there's no bribery, then I would think the state would not bother them. So, but how do you fix it? I don't know enough about the issues to say that. And, of course, this indictment today comes at the opportune moment for those right. who support the state takeover. Uh, yeah, not that this indictment necessarily has anything to do with the airport, but it does raise, again, questions about uh, buddy contracts, favorable, you know, well, yeah, uh, contracts being given. I mean, it is linked to the airport since since Jeff Jafari was a, a major vendor 
um, with with a lot of business all around the city city offices. But um, this is the case that Senator Jones has been making since since he first dropped the bill. I think it was early 2018. It was shortly after the fire at the airport too. Mm-hmm. So he brought up the fire as as well as another issue. But you know, the cynic in me says yes, he wants to clean it up. But there's also a tremendous amount of power that goes to this new airport authority board uh, that will that will have influence over contracts and already the airport uh, vendors are some of the biggest donors to political campaigns in the city of Atlanta. Um, so you can better believe that, that this will be a sought after appoint, uh, appointment for supporters of, of the top officials in Georgia too, if this ever happens. Do we think it's going to, yeah, well, let me ask a different question. It is my understanding. And I think mayor bottoms has said this, that in the long run, the FAA has an enormous amount of power in terms of uh, being involved in deciding who, in fact, controls any uh, airport under FAA jurisdiction. North Carolina is the best example. Right. Of that. Charlotte. There's a fight for since 2013 over North Carolina and Charlotte. And it turns out um, the FAA ruled that uh, there can be no hostile takeover of an airport as long as the airport opposes it. But this bill has 30, 30 co-sponsors, even if one or two of them drop out and, and maybe one other Republican who didn't co-sponsor it signs on. It looks like it has the juice to pass in the Senate. The House is a different story. And Governor Kemp hasn't said anything publicly about it. I can't imagine him trying to wade into this battle his first year. Did any of us, did, did his floor leader sign it? I think they did. His that fl- doesn't necessarily mean the governor's back back behind it. He may, sometimes he lets them do what they want to do. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to watch it, Beth. It's going to be interesting. Uh, my impression is that it's also opposed pretty strongly by Delta Airlines. Yes. And I, I would think um, they still wield some political clout. They're a little NRA dust up notwithstanding, but I, I would think that their opposition um, would have an impact, if not in the Senate, uh, perhaps in the House, perhaps on the governor. All right. It's great deal bait. It's good. Oh, there's an interesting it thought. What's going to be bad. what's going to be exchange in mm-hmm. exchange for mm-hmm. that? <laughs> and that's the big. I, I'm not exactly sure what's going to be dangled um, mm-hmm. to, to sort of forge some sort of compromise. All right, vouchers, maybe. Uh, Adam, let's turn to another issue that I believe I'm correct is still in the mix uh, and and uh, available to be passed by one body or the other, and that's certificate of need. It's a complicated issue. We've talked about it a little bit on this show, but I would think down your way, especially, uh, especially with the areas around Savannah, the greater uh, region where you've got a lot of rural health facilities, the question about whether the state should change the way in which it does or does not grant certificates of need would be a very important one. Absolutely. The, the certificate of need debate, the narrative has really kind of changed, right? The last couple of weeks, of course, Senator Ben Watson is the head of the, the health committee in the Senate and is really was a big driver in terms of certificate of need reform before the session started. That all kind of changed a little bit when Governor Kemp rolled out his Patients First Act and the whole idea of looking at Medicaid waivers and looking at other ways in order to uh, get more people insured and to help these rural hospitals. And it's almost like certificate of need is on the back burner until they get some real traction in terms of what they ultimately want to do with with Governor Kemp's uh, initiative, and that's that's at least the impression I've gotten. And you know, we'll see. I guess we'll see in the next twenty four hours if certificate of need slips through or if it stays kind of in the background. Beth, we we thought for a long time that there was a trade in the making on this that uh, that if the governor would agree to expand Medicaid under the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, under Obamacare, that perhaps in exchange, the regulations on certificate of need could be loosened so that uh, for-profit hospitals would have more freedom. And, and for that matter, all medical facilities across the state would have more freedom to do the kind of treatments they wanted to, to build as they wanted to. So in a way, Adam's correct to say we're going to wait and see if there's anything happening that'll uh, put those two together. But it seems that I, I am no expert on certificate of need. It won't stop me from talking about it, but I'm, I'm no expert on it. But it, it seems as if the uh, the, the if, if we loosen the regulations on, on certi- the requirements around uh, CON, that the state's nonprofit hospitals, uh, many of which are in rural areas, would stand to be harmed uh, by this. Uh, 
which is also part of what my understanding is of what we're trying to do with the Medicare Medicaid waivers, uh, which is to uh, provide be able to provide more health care into rural areas, which again is supportive of rural hospitals. So it it, it seems as if uh, I don't know what you could you could try to trade, but you're still hurting rural health care provision no matter which one you go with. And, uh, and I, I think I, I think part of, part of what's dry, a lot of this drive is being driven by Phoebe Putnam, who controls health care in, in, in South, South Georgia, Georgia, and nobody can compete with them because they object to all of the CONs. The, and this is this is kind of like the voucher. It's government versus the free enterprise system. It's the haves versus the have-nots. The hospitals don't want to give anything up, and even though they call themselves non nonprofit, they're making lots of money. Um, and this is an attempt to inject free, free the free market system into lower health care costs. Georgia, Georgia has one of the strictest CON laws left in the country. A lot of states have done away with it. In fact, about going back to the Medicaid waiver, what I'm hearing is the Washington, the CMS in Washington may tie CON reform to approval of Georgia huh. Medicaid uh, waivers. That's new. Yeah. Um, but this was supposed to be the year this, this all happened. Right. New governor, exactly. new health uh, a committee chair, chairman in the Senate. This was this was the year where there was going to be some sort of compromise, some sort of, if not a, a, a you know a total deregulation, but some sort of move towards that. Um, and it looks like it could be gummed up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got to get our final break of the show in, but before we do, um, there's only one person on this show today who has a piece of legislation now pending <laughs> under the Gold Dome, named in. That person's the honor. Beth Shapiro Act. <laughs> it is not the Greg Bluestein or Beth Shapiro or Adam Van Brimmer Act. Eric Johnson, you have a at HB one is an act that is now being called officially in the bill the Senator Eric Johnson Scholarship Act. And I we used to think to you should you only name things after people who had died. So you know. <laughs> well, you better get downtown and tell your friends you're still kicking. Yeah. What is it? Just very quickly. It's the, the, the only voucher program that Georgia has that, that I authored, and I was a proud sponsor of it, was the Special Needs Scholarship, which allows kids with special needs to be able to move into the private market for school systems where the public school system isn't meeting them. And the, and, uh, and the public schools, they, they didn't oppose it as strongly as they do now, but uh, there's a lot of benefit going on. To How that. long have you been out of the legislation? Uh, nine years. Nine years, and you're still being talked about downtown, and this bill proves it. All right, let's do this. Let's but at least he's being talked about in a positive way. Yes, let's take a break. So we'll far. be right back. On the next Fresh Air, <laughs> director Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who made the Oscar-winning The Lives of Others. His latest film, Never Look Away, is about an artist who grows up in Germany when Nazis ban modern art, comes of age in East Germany when communists force artists to paint propaganda and flees to West Germany where anything goes. Join us. Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Beth Shapiro, Bill week, Nigan. week or so ago, I pick up the AJC and there's a big blaring headline on the front page. Kemp looking to, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, Kemp looking to outlaw abortion in Georgia. It was a startling headline, uh, it, it, partly because we know that throughout the campaign, uh, Brian Kemp said that he would pass the toughest abortion laws in the uh, country. But upon further reflection, and as it seems to be developing at the Capitol right now, this may be, have been a very clever move to try to please the base that voted for him, but at the same time, head off a bill uh, called a fetal heartbeat bill, essentially, that would, for the most part, outlaw abortions after six weeks. That bill appears now to be going nowhere because Governor Kemp's bill is moving forward. Help us understand what the governor's done here. 
Well, I, I, I think uh, if, if indeed your interpretation is correct, and I, I think it, it is, um, he has uh, somewhat cleverly uh, attempted to take an issue off the table that uh, he made a, a, a pretty startling commitment Yeah, Greg, on. his bill his bill is a trigger bill. Mm-hmm. If, if the Supreme Court of the United States outlaws Roe v. Wade, then the state of Georgia will outlaw abortion. Uh, with four exceptions. With yeah, well, and those exceptions are obviously very interesting, mm-hmm. but to put, but what the governor's done is put the onus on the Supreme Court of the United States. And there's another, <laughs> and if even if that happens, then it still has to go back for a vote for a in vote. the Georgia General yeah. Assembly. Both yeah. both chambers have to pass another. So it's kind of threading the needle here because it doesn't actually take any specific action. It it. it Conservatives, some conservatives see it as a half measure, others are applauding it, but really want the fetal heartbeat bill, the other bill that is not seeming to have the same momentum behind it, that would essentially outlaw all abortions after six weeks. Yeah, Eric, I don't doubt for a second that Brian Kemp is firmly opposed to abortion. I mean, that seems pretty clear, but I'm not sure that he needed in his first session to to preside over a session that was going to, in fact, at this point, pass something as as stern as the fetal heartbeat measure. I think this is one of those issues where you take politics out of it. I think these are deeply held moral values that people are are exercising and believe in. I think the reason that it's still alive is because the National Democratic Party voted to allow babies to be killed after they're born on their infant, the North Carolina bill and the Washington bill. They opened the door for the pro-life movement to see, see, look what they want to do. We need to protect the life of unborn children. I I don't, I don't think we have time, uh, time remaining in our eight minutes to, to really get into the medical uh, uh, discussion about um, abortion and the, the choices that families have to make under very dire circumstances. I, I do think to, uh, to, to come back to what Governor Kemp is doing, what the Republicans are doing in, in Georgia, is that when Governor Kemp campaigned for governor, he committed to enacting the strictest uh, abortion laws in the country, um, and that that would be, a, uh, that would be something that he, that he promised his base. I also think that Governor Kemp and uh, Republicans have looked at the election returns from last year, particularly at what happened in the northern suburbs of Atlanta, where uh, I I will never forget the the comment that uh, Rusty Paul, mayor of Sandy Springs, made uh, back in May after the primary. And he talked about there being a tectonic shift in the the northern suburbs led by moderate and moderate-leaning Republican women who are— uh, leaving the Republican Party, or at least distraught with the Republican Party, on uh, a range of, of social issues, abortion rights, uh, the so-called religious freedom laws, uh, gun safety laws, uh, gun safety issues, and that, that these issues are, are driving, are, are uh, to a great measure, what drove the, the Democratic successes last year. And I think Republicans are looking ahead at the 2020 uh, elections uh, and realizing that that they stand to see more erosion in their base if they keep pushing these uh, divisive yeah, issues. Yeah, I, 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 you know what, Adam, I don't I don't disagree with Eric Johnson for a minute that these are this is an issue that people have deeply held beliefs on oh, on both yeah. sides of it. Uh, so that's true. Uh, I, I do take exception to the fact that you have to take the politics out of it because there is obviously a major political component. And what what Beth Shapiro says strikes me as having some validity. I think Republicans under the dome are being very careful about just how far to the right they want to move, given their concerns about suburban women in the next election cycle. Yeah, there's a lot of machinations here. Obviously, it's going on in other states. It's going on at the federal level. I think what Senator Johnson said about the late-term abortions has certainly injected new passion into this debate as somebody who who fields and edits and publishes letters to the editor every day of the week, I can tell you that, that my inbox has, has seen a, uh, quite a climb in the, the folks that are weighing in on this subject. And in terms of the, the political side of it, yeah, George is becoming, I mean, whatever you want to call it, you want to call it purple, you want to call it more blue, you want to call it less red, whatever you want to call it, 
But we have a big election coming up, a primaries coming up in less, well, a little bit more than a year now. And uh, getting in position now uh, before the before the legislature breaks up and before state politics kind of take a step back is probably a pretty true move. All right. Greg, where's this headed? Um, well, I think the trigger bill passes. Yes. It's, it's got the right. full weight of and the, and the fetal heartbeat bill goes somewhere else. But if it you're camping disappears. and you ran such a partisan campaign yeah. with all these promises on religious liberty, gun sure. expansions, and it looks like religious liberty was sidelined. There's no significant gun expansion bill. There's no significant illegal immigration crackdown. And yet you're taking steps towards a limited expansion of Medicaid. You're, you're kind of giving the signal that you're somewhat okay with a casino legalizing gambling. He's got to do something. Transit. 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 He's got to do something for the conservative yeah, base. Let, let, so this is a measure there. All right. We got to point out casino or, or gambling is still alive, and we're going to see how that goes over yeah, the next 24 hours. There could and, very well be a vote in, this, in the Georgia House, another one of those first ever votes. All right. We're, we're almost out of time. But I want to turn to a completely separate issue very briefly, uh, because we're going to be back on Friday to talk about all that did and didn't get through on uh, crossover day. But remember the Super Bowl? Remember this? Commercial. My king, this corn syrup was just delivered. That's not ours. We don't brew Bud Light with corn syrup. Miller Light uses corn syrup. Let us take it to them at once. But if something did happen, we'd eat the wizard first, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, brewers of Miller Light, we received your corn syrup by mistake. That's not our corn syrup. We received our shipment this morning. You're joking. Try the Coors Light Castle. They also use corn syrup. <sighs> A lot of people thought that commercial was pretty funny, Greg Blustein, but there's one Georgian who didn't. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, 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 and it's such a big part of the, the agricultural community here in Georgia. I didn't think it was very funny either, though. Well, okay, but just... Sonny Purdue, Sonny Purdue has announced that he is boycotting drinking Budweiser Light as a result of that commercial. Uh, by the way, one of the things about this commercial that's interesting is uh, Budweiser apparently is pulling a little deception here. It's high fructose corn syrup that people have health concerns about, not just corn syrup. But here's the thing about this, Eric, and why I wanted to mention it at the very end of the show. Sonny Purdue's a teetotaler. He wouldn't serve alcohol. What's he talking about boycotting Budweiser? <laughs> What, dilly dilly? <laughs> dilly dilly, that's it. I just wanted to get that in before the show ended because I thought it was funny. We've had a series of governors who don't want to serve alcohol at the mansion at all. And you know, Greg Bluestein, when you're working at the Capitol like you are covering the Capitol, you have to have a drink every now and oh, then. Oh, we might see some in some red solo cups tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, it's because Miller Lite is a gateway drug to, to harder alcohol. That's right, to bourbon. That's it. We're completely out of time for today's show. It's great to have the Savannah contingent here. Adam Van Brimmer down in our Savannah Bureau. Eric Johnson, it was great that you were in Atlanta and we could have you in the studio. We've had you on from Savannah. Thank you for being with us. Beth Shapiro, so good to see you again. Greg Bluestein, we'll see you again next week on Political Rewind. In the meantime, we're off tomorrow, but we will be back Friday at 2 with our live radio show. We'll be on TV uh, Friday night at 7, and then a repeat of that show Sunday morning at 9. We'll have all the news about what happened on Crossover Day. I'm Bill Nygut. See you on Friday. <laughs>